Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on our first episode. Whether countries grow or not determines whether people eat or don't eat. Economist Peter Blair Henry with a new look at old school macroeconomic policies. Welcome, everybody, to the inaugural episode of The New Bazaar. Amy and I, that's Amy Keene, my business partner who produces the show, the two of us are so grateful that you're here. And I want to say a quick word before we get started on the show's format. Every week, I interview a new guest about how the economy shapes our lives. And I start each episode with an essay that introduces the show and the guest. And then afterwards, there's a long-form interview with the guest. That's it. Pretty simple. But also, we know that not everybody digs the long introduction by the host thing. So if you want to go straight to the interview, mash that 30 seconds ahead button until you hear music that sounds like this. And that's how you know that the interview is about to start. Stick around for the credits of this episode for a quick preview of topics we'll cover in future shows. But for now, let's get to the episode itself. There is something about the way economic policy debates play out these days that drives me a little crazy. But let me start with this. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a decent chance that you're familiar with debates about inequality in the U.S. and Europe and other rich countries. And even if not, there's at least a good chance that you know that income inequality has gone up in these countries in recent decades because it has. Here's a fact you might be less familiar with. Since the late 1980s, for the first time in two centuries, global income inequality has actually fallen. So if you look at inequality across the whole world, as opposed to just inequality within a specific country, for the first time since the Industrial Revolution, it has gone down. And the reason it has gone down is the incredible progress that's been made by poor developing countries in catching up to the rich economies of the world. So what's behind that? And also, what could be more important than figuring that out? How a poor country becomes more prosperous, lifting people out of poverty so they can avoid hunger and educate their kids, giving people a choice for what to do with their lives. Today's guest, Peter Blair Henry, has dedicated his career to finding answers to that question. And his latest research does offer a few answers, but there's a twist. The policies that he finds have worked, the policies, in other words, that developing countries have used to accelerate their economic growth, were once considered pretty basic sound macroeconomic policies. But now those same policies have become controversial in economic debates that take place in rich countries, the same rich countries that once encouraged those policies, and let's face it, once foisted those policies onto the developing countries in the first place. Now, we go through each of these policies in our chat, but the controversy over them is mainly about whether they are too market-friendly, whether they limit too much the role of government in steering the economy to make sure that the benefits of economic growth reach everybody. And so what ends up happening, and this is the part that drives me nuts, is that debates about things like free trade, foreign investment, privatization get caught up in these partisan or ideological squabbles where people start throwing around words like 
neoliberal or technocratic or capitalist or socialist or progressive, like epithets. So people end up taking a side, and the debates about these policies turn real unproductive real fast. The nuances of why these policies work and the nuances of how these policies should be applied to different countries with differing circumstances get lost. It happens all the time. It is maddening. And Peter Blair Henry has no time for this. He really doesn't. You'll even hear him get kind of fired up about it on the show. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him is that his own work is so consistently non-ideological, non-partisan. So you'll hear him praise market-friendly policies, of course, but also praise things like Joe Biden's antitrust agenda, a fair tax code, more infrastructure spending. And you definitely cannot accuse him of running away from nuances, even if you disagree with him. Some quick background before we start the show. I refer a few times to Peter's book called Turnaround, where he writes about developing countries. And we also discuss his recent paper called The Baker Hypothesis, which Peter wrote with his co-authors Anusha Chari and Hector Reyes. That paper is named after a famous speech by Secretary of State James Baker in 1985, where he, Secretary Baker, proposed some of the very policies that Peter and his co-authors have just analyzed. And by the way, if there is one piece of new economic research that I would want to elevate right now, it is the Baker hypothesis. And so with that, my interview with Peter Blair Henry. Here it is. I kind of interpret a lot of your intellectual project as reminding policymakers about the centrality of economic growth when talking about policies in developing countries. And it seems vital to mention this because there has been a kind of like intellectual trend, intellectual fashion for the concept of degrowth or at least de-emphasizing the importance of growth in recent years, sometimes citing worries about, you know, climate change, the environment or inequality, sometimes just citing the kind of connotation with like greed or something like that. So let me just start with that. What's been your response to that trend and how would you sort of reemphasize the importance of economic growth to developing countries? Economic growth is really, it is central to, to developing countries. And I think that it's been easily forgotten because the last, if you think about the last really 40 years, and I'm not exaggerating when I say 40 years, there's been a remarkable thing that's happened, which is that we've seen more, uh, more uniformity of economic growth than we've ever seen around the world. And in particular, we're seeing it in developing countries that didn't have it systematically prior to really the, the late 1980s and early 1990s. And the ironic thing is that developing countries are now growing, you know, putting, you know, the COVID shock aside. It's been a really, on average, an outstanding uh, couple of decades for developing countries. That growth has happened because of policies that the developed world, you know, have been pushing on developing countries, which used to be called third world countries, for for decades. And it wasn't until the um, late 1980s, early 1990s that developing countries actually started listening. And so now we find ourselves in a situation, developing countries are finally growing. And to use a phrase that, you know, Gilda Radner uh, used to use on Saturday Night Live, I'm dating myself here, but Gilda Radner used to say, just kidding, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so all of a sudden the developed countries are saying, just kidding, right? Just, just kidding about free trade. And we know we told you guys that free trade is a good thing, but actually, no, we want to close our borders now because we're upset because we, the developed countries, have not handled internally very well uh, adjustments to trade. Or, gee, you know, 
growth is kind of boring. So let's just let's let's only focus on redistribution now. You know, forgetting about the fact that in order to have something to re- redistribute, you've got to have a bigger pie. And so it's it's I think it's a problem because um, developing countries are finally reaping the benefits of growth, and developed countries I think policymakers have gotten a little a little confused, and it's deeply it's deeply unfair, and it's also bad for the developed countries by the way. Of course, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a global economy. Um, th- there's a quote from Turnaround uh, that cites this kind of historical note, which I think is really important too. I'm just going to read it here. Never in the history of the world has a country sustainably reduced poverty without significantly increasing its population's average overall standard of living. And to be clear, the average overall standard of living is another way of saying without economic growth, without increasing economic growth. And the point you made about going from zero sum to positive sum, where if you want to redistribute things, then you first need for the overall pie to grow. This seems to be sort of the crucial point that you're making, right? That economic growth is consistent with redistribution and with more infrastructure spending and with a bigger safety net. Uh, it's not mutually exclusive to those things. Absolutely. And even and even more importantly, in some ways, Cardiff, human nature is such that let's 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 take a really simple example. Let's say that there's there's a pie and Peter and Cardiff have to share the pie. And um, if I just say, Cardiff, I want more of your pie, but guess what? You're going to have to have a less pie. Mm-hmm. That's not such an easy thing for you yeah, to agree. agree. <laughs> that sucks, right? <laughs> to put up my Whereas if I say, Cardiff, okay, um, I need some more pie, but guess what? You're going to have more pie too, right? But in the history of the world, there's never been an example where this pie has stayed the same and we found a way, or governments have found a way to give more of the pie to other parts of the population without shrinking the pie. So there's, there's never been a way to, to, to transfer pie from Cardiff to Peter without increasing the size of the pie that hasn't eventually either shrunk the size of the pie or Cardiff and Peter ended up, ending up basically, you know, at fisticuffs, a war with each other. Yeah. So that's just, that's just, that's the reality. That's just the reality. Yeah. This often becomes subject to a kind of partisan debate about, you know, traditionally on the right, pursuing a more kind of free markety, laissez-faire approach on the left, an approach to, you know, higher taxes, higher spending. And those categories have been kind of, you know, switched around and, and have become more complicated in recent years. But it's interesting to me that in a lot of your work, you're sort of, I mean, not not just, you know, uh, consistently, but I would say aggressively nonpartisan about this. I mean, you make the point that laissez-faire, hands-off everything is not the way to go, and neither is an agenda that interferes with the kinds of economic reforms that do include a lot of market mechanisms and that lead to more economic growth. Yeah, I, I like I like the term aggressively nonpartisan. That's, I think it's a good way of describing um, my, my, my views on these things aggressively nonpartisan. I'll tell you why it's for me, it's personal. Okay. So I have what I would call a nondescript, you know, American accent. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can't really tell where I'm from, but I'm from Jamaica originally. Okay. And the reason I have a nondescript American accent is because my family left Jamaica when I was nine years old. Why? Because Jamaica was in the middle of an economic tailspin that was brought about by policies that basically wanted to bring about a complete redistribution of the pie by essentially taxing the wealthy, 
closing Jamaica's borders to trade and engaging in a wide range of what you would call them sort of, you know, strongly left-leaning economic policies, for lack, lack of a better term. Basically, not, let's call them non-market-friendly policies, okay? And and, be, and to be clear, my I didn't come from a wealthy family. We weren't poor by any stretch of the imagination. My parents were, well, both my parents were scientists, all right? Um, but because the Jamaican government under Michael Manley in the 1970s decided that the way to address Jamaica's legitimate, you know, there were legitimate concerns about inequality in Jamaica coming out of its colonial history. But rather than growing the pie, Michael Manley decided he was going to take pie from the rich and give it to the poor. And he even, you know, made a famous speech about it in 1974 or 76 or something like that. Something somewhere, somewhere around there in the early 70s, he made a speech saying Jamaica has no room for millionaires. Is that when he told everybody to go to Miami? Exactly. And guess what? A bunch of people left and went to Miami. And, and the people that left for Miami, the people who could afford to go to Miami, people who were mobile. So the people who owned businesses, the people who, you know, were scientists like my parents or doctors. And so a bunch of the driving force of the economy left. So all that to say, I'm aggressively nonpartisan about, you know, about policies on the left that are too far to the left. They just, they just don't, they don't work. The economy shrinks. On the other hand, Yes, we need to implement market-friendly reforms, but market-friendly reforms, things that in introduce real competition, are not the same thing as policies that are just friendly to the wealthy. Okay, let's be very, that, 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 this is where the nonpartisan point comes in, because I think what happened with the, let's call it the, the, the revolution of harnessing the market for the good of the order, okay? Harnessing the market to lift masses of people out of poverty. Okay, that is the right agenda. Okay, or the correct, if you will, to my, to my view, economic agenda. That, that agenda, I think, got hijacked um, in the mid-80s, into the 90s, by what um, others have called capitalists, you know, special interests masquerading as ca in capitalist clothing. Okay, so think about the pro-competition agenda that the Biden administration has just put in place. I think it's a very healthy agenda, right? Because we want more competition as opposed to saying because markets are good for lifting people out of poverty, then how somehow trying to extend that argument in a, in a specious way to say that there's, you know, we don't need taxes or that the government shouldn't be involved in any aspect of people's lives in terms of providing social safety. Net. And that's just nonsense. We know that we need, we need governments to do, to do some things well. If you look at the growth report, which was was a report that was produced by the World Bank around 2006. It was commissioned by the World Bank and headed by Nobel laureate Mike Spence. And the growth report found that of the countries that had grown at 5% or more per year uh, for 20 or more years, there are only 13 examples of those countries in the post-World War II period. And every one of those countries had, to some extent, relied on market forces to deliver goods and services, Everyone in those countries had a stable environment, meaning they'd reduced inflation. And everyone in those countries had good leadership. But all those countries also, they used that good leadership to put in place the infrastructure that they needed to grow, to educate their citizens, um, to have a fair and efficient tax system. So policies that have caused countries to grow by 5% or more for extended periods of time are not the same thing as policies that just completely leave government out of the picture and just allow those who have, by um, by some manner of fortune and also um, their own hard work, accumulated wealth to just allow them to have a free ride. It's just not the case. 
Okay, Peter, I now want to turn to the Baker hypothesis, which was the paper that you recently finished with Anushachari and Hector Reyes, your co-authors. The three of you studied four specific economic reforms that are part of this agenda to spur economic growth in developing countries. And I want to just go through each of the four, and we'll talk about whether or not they worked, and we'll talk about some of the nuances in how they should be applied. First up, inflation stabilization. And to be clear, by that, we just mean reducing inflation from, you know, a very high rate of inflation to a lower rate of inflation. When inflation is low, stable, and predictable, so less less than 10% per year, and it doesn't move around a lot, it's easy for consumers to plan uh, their purchases and for businesses to plan their investment and their pricing. When inflation's 200% per year, things are a mess. No one knows exactly what prices are going to be in the future. Uh, prices start rising even more rapidly when they're at that level, and they start rising in ways that are very different across different categories of goods. And so that the product, the price of the product you're selling may uh, rise less quickly than the prices of the uh, products that you're using to produce, you know, shirts or, or shoes. And so all of a sudden you're unprofitable. It creates a lot of uncertainty. So high inflation, that is high, inflation is high, unstable and unpredictable, undermines economic growth. I want to get into a little bit of nuance here because there's a part of your book, Turnaround, that talks about the difference in a developing country going from super high inflation above 40% to then going below 40% for a couple of years. When it reduces inflation that way really quickly, that can be a boost to economic growth. But it's not necessarily the case that if inflation, say, is already down to 15%, that going from 15% to below 10%, let's say all the way down to 5%, that if it does that too quickly, that that can actually be a problem, a hindrance for economic growth, because it might suggest that it slowed its economy down too quickly and, and too much. This is really intriguing because it sort of shows that even though in general, reducing inflation is a good idea when it's too high, the same idea doesn't apply the same way in every different country. In every different country and every different circumstance. So as an empirical fact, yeah, if going from 50% inflation to, you know, 15% inflation, that, that seems in the data that when countries do that, it improves their economy. But just to make it really tangible, I mean, that, so an example of that would be, you know, kind of Brazil going from, you know, uh, inflation in, you know, in the triple digits in the early 1990s to where when Brazil was in actually pretty good economic shape in the early 2000s, you know, would be a good example of that. And a developed country example would be, just think about the United States right now. We're having a major kind of, I would say, public hang-wringing contest over whether inflation being above 2% for a couple of months is going to lead us into being where Brazil was in the, in the 1990s. And Jay Powell and the Fed have basically said, listen, we're in a different inflation targeting regime. We're going to look at average inflation over an extended period of time, and we're not going to freak out because inflation, you know, went up to 5% for, for the last couple of months because we're coming out of COVID. Everybody, everybody all of a sudden wants a rental car, <laughs> right? So what the research from Turnaround sort of suggests, um, without trying to overstate the case, is that it may be quite reasonable for Jay Powell to say, look, 
I don't need to raise interest rates right now to drive inflation down from, you know, 5% to 1% because it might be overkill. Okay, let's go to the next reform that you and your co-authors studied, which is a developing country opening its economy to global trade, removing barriers to trade effectively. And again, you found Mm -hmm. that it works. Countries that allow more trade end up growing more quickly. And I think, Peter, a lot of people understand the common argument in favor of trade, which is that it allows a country to make more of the products that it specializes in so it can then sell those abroad. And then, of course, the country can import the products that it is not as good at making. But you also emphasize something else, which is that a country exposing itself to trade can also help that country to upgrade its own domestic technology and to bring in new managerial ideas for how to make certain products. So tell us about that angle. Imagine if you said, we don't make our own laptops. And so we're going to close our borders until we figure out how to make our own laptops because we want to be able to be a world leader in laptops. Well, if you do that, that's going to hurt your country for a while, right? You might eventually develop your own laptop industry. uh, But in the meantime, you're losing out on, on the benefits of using the, those computers directly, but also, you know, you're um, being kind of networked into all of the technological externalities that we know exist from being part of the, the information economy. So again, another kind of extreme example, but it really is the case that uh, locking yourself out of the market for free trade means you're also effectively locking yourself out of the market for ideas. And ideas are vital to economic growth, even more vital than um, than capital and, and or just as vital as capital and labor. And I want to ask you about something that I think has been controversial, not just in development economics, but just in economics generally for a really long time, which is what role should protectionism play or, you know, um, putting in place tariffs or other things that restrict imports? What role should that play in a developing country going from being, you know, a poor country to a richer country? And I bring it up because there is kind of a long tradition of developing countries, including at one point, you know, in the 1800s, the U.S., later on Germany, later on Japan, later on, you know, South Korea and and some of the East Asian economies. These countries would at times restrict imports in the higher tech industries that they wanted to develop domestically, which is very different from restricting imports for the entire economy. And so this seems like it's a big part of the so-called East Asian economic miracle. And I guess I'm I'm curious to know how you address that particular nuance, that particular complication in this idea that developing countries should expose themselves more broadly to free trade. Yeah, so there can be a theoretical case for for tariffs, but as a practical matter, tariffs should be small, judicious, and rare, right? And so you think about the cases where tariffs have actually helped in economic development. They're far outweighed by the cases where they did, where they did damage. And even take a country like South Korea, which is often cited as, you know, it's kind of a favorite example on the left of um, a country that ended up sort of market-driven policies. But if you look even at South Korea's free trade policy, it's true they had a lot of import restrictions, but they grew in large part by removing those import restrictions. You know, they did it fairly slowly, but they realized that in order to uh, to grow, they needed to import goods. They, they imported goods such as uh, color televisions is a great example. So before you know, South Korea 
became a leading producer of color televisions um, before it had a it had a domestic uh, broadcasting system in in color because by importing those color televisions, it basically figured out how to you know if you look at it reverse engineer and build those those televisions themselves. So even the case where you're you know importing importing to learn how to export is one example of of basically using imports to learn how to take advantage of the of the of the outside world. In the case of South Korea, they slowly removed tariffs, but even as the, even when they had tariffs in place, I guess is the point that I'm making, they were importing a lot of goods. And if you look at the history of South Korea over the the two decades in which they had their kind of highest period of economic growth, which is from kind of the late 1970s, mid or called mid 1970s, um, up until the Asian crisis, South Korea during that entire period. Almost every year they ran a trade deficit. I think that's, that's not a well-known fact. So people tend to think of, you know, South Korea as being, you know, this country that, you know, felt that, that followed a non-kind of market path. But South Korea actually um, was importing quite a bit, even as it was growing as an, as an exporter. And that's the point. You know, a growing economy... Uh, you would expect it to actually, its imports to be growing as well. Yeah, Peter, let's go to the third plank of economic reforms that you and your co-authors studied. And this one's fascinating to me, and it's allowing more foreign investment into a developing country. And the reason this is so interesting is that a lot of times this is an idea that people worry will lead to a big economic bubble inside of that developing country because an amount of money from foreigners abroad, foreign capital, that might not be a lot relative to all the money sloshing around the global economy, could be huge as a share of all the money inside that developing country. And the worry is that you end up with a huge bubble either in asset prices or in the price of some goods. The currency sometimes of the developing country will become really, really strong. And eventually, when the bubble bursts and a lot of that money turns around and flows right out, it exacerbates the economic downturn in its wake. Um, but you found that actually allowing in more foreign investment ends up leading to a lot of subsequent economic growth, that it can have really beneficial effects. What's going on there? So the key thing when thinking about foreign direct, foreign investment in a developing country is to make the distinction between debt and equity. So debt investment if I'm lending money to, let's say, I don't know, let's, let's say Indonesia. If Indonesia has some projects and these projects in Indonesia get financed through a debt contract, which means no matter what happens to the projects, the people who borrowed the money have got to pay back the lenders and have, they have to service that debt. Then, you know, when Indonesia falls in economic hard times, um, it's going to have a really, may have a really hard time servicing that debt, in particular if it borrowed in U.S. dollars. And let's say there's a devaluation of the currency, then the value of the debt that's got to be paid back is even higher. And so the, the situation just gets exacerbated. Whereas if those projects in Indonesia uh, are financed through equity, like stocks, then in that case, equity is basically an agreement that says when things are going well, the Indonesian companies are doing well, then they'll, they pay dividends to the, the foreign equity holders. When things aren't going so well, dividends don't get paid out or dividends get reduced. And so in the real world, the, the examples are a little more complicated than that, but that's the basic point. Developing countries that, that rely too heavily on debt financing found themselves in times of economic distress in even worse circumstances because the debt they took on exacerbated the economic downturn. 
versus countries that open their stock markets to foreign investment to allow this kind of equity investment. Following those equity market liberalizations, uh, you do tend to see higher, uh, higher investment and not just higher capital flows going to those economies, but actually real physical investment. So as a result of money flowing into the stock market, which reduces the cost of, uh, the cost of equity financing for projects, you actually see more physical capital investment. And by the way, because that's not a zero-sum game, increasing the amount of investment that goes into, let's say, building new factories, you know, increases the productivity of workers. Their wages tend to rise as well. And so you can get a beneficial self-reinforcing cycle of investment, higher wages, higher growth. That's good for the economy. But the debt equity distinction is really, really the critical one. Yeah, and I, I think I would make a couple of points in response to one, which you highlight in your book, is that the reason that a lot of developing countries end up with so much debt is that actually the legal and regulatory landscape has skewed things in that direction so that debt is privileged in a way, debt is favored, and it ends up becoming a real problem. You know, the other thing I would note, though, is that a lot of even multilateral institutions that traditionally were sort of hesitant to embrace the idea that some countries should have some capital controls, so not across the board, but that there are limited circumstances where capital controls that limit inflows might be appropriate. Um, they've changed their minds on this. You know, it's not like the IMF is now saying capital controls are awesome, but I think over the years they've softened their stance, which used to be very strongly against any kind of capital controls. And I have a feeling that this is what they had in mind, that, you know, the idea that certain types of debt end up leading to these just economic catastrophes for these developing countries. Uh, so anyways, what do you sort of think about how things have changed, you know, over the last couple of decades when it comes to certain types of capital inflows versus other kinds? I think the change in thinking on capital flows is a good example of um, things moving, I think, generally in, in favor of a less partisan direction. So at one point, the view was there were lots of uh, – kind of wealthy interests in the United States that just wanted to be able to invest in the developing world in whatever form they could. And so that was an argument for basically, you know, this is why we should we should lift all capital controls. And without thinking about this distinction between debt and equity, then we had some crises uh, that happened in particularly the Asian crisis in the 1990s. And then you had folks on the left people like Joe Stiglitz come to mind, you know, this knee-jerk reaction saying, we told you so, lifting capital controls is a bad idea. And that was things swinging too far in the, in, in the other direction in the wrong way. When really the right answer was, yes, what we've learned in the textbooks is really right. Opening up to capital flows in some form is going to allow countries to be more productive because it's going to allow capital flow from, from countries that have a lot of capital to countries that don't have much capital. But I think the IMF, the World Bank, and others have not been very sharp in making this distinction between debt and equity, because that is really, that's the central point. You know, everything else is sort of details. But once you recognize that every financial crisis you can think of in the last three decades or four decades, going back to the third world debt crisis, the Asian market crisis, the Mexican crisis, uh, the LTCM Russian crisis, and the Great Recession, these are all crises precipitated by excessive leverage. There, there, none of these crises originated in the stock market per se, right? And so if I would, I would love to see the, the international institutions just get sharper about this point. Yeah. And Peter, the first three 
reforms that we discussed, inflation stabilization, opening up to trade, and allowing in more foreign investment, you found in your paper that these all worked quite definitively and quite clearly in your Mm -hmm. conclusions, that they led to a subsequent period of economic growth for the countries that tried them. This last reform had a more mixed finding, which was privatization. So the idea of privatizing certain industries that were previously owned and run by the government. So why don't you kind of give us a sense of when privatization is likely to work and when it doesn't, because the paper does list a number of nuances here. If you privatize state-owned companies in an industry that's already pretty competitive, where there are a lot of occupants to that industry, that's much more likely to result in lower prices and better products for consumers than if you privatize a set of companies or a company that has a complete monopoly in an industry. Because then you're just going from one monopoly to another. You're just going from the state to some rich oligarch or something. Exactly. If I just basically transfer a monopoly from the the public sector to the private sector, I'm just, as you said, I'm likely to just to create a rich oligarch. Okay? And so that's a great example of needing to understand the nuance of the economic landscape to, to determine whether a policy is likely to be effective or not. And also a good example of how to distinguish between what's going to be good for the country as a whole versus what's going to be good for, in this case, a handful of people who might be lobbying for privatization. Why? Because they stand to, to be the ones to, to be able to make the first bid on this, on this state-owned asset. And we know that privatization went awry, certainly in the, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, the, the initial conditions, as it were, were not thought about as carefully. Or to put it less delicately, there were forces, there were, there, there were special interests that really stood to benefit very, very strongly from being the sole or one of a few competitors for the assets that were, were going to be privatized. Okay. Yeah, there, there are more details, but that's a big part of the issue. So, Peter, that's the Baker hypothesis. And I got to tell you what's kind of interesting about it is that if you look at these policies, you know, stabilizing inflation, exposing yourself to more free trade, allowing in more foreign investment, you know, privatizing when going about it the right way. These are ideas that I think a few decades ago would have just simply been considered, you know, sound macroeconomic ideas. And in this paper where you find that these ideas actually work, because the intellectual landscape across economics has kind of changed in the last few decades, it's really interesting to me that your findings are almost contrarian, at least in some circles. And I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that your paper hasn't gotten a little bit more attention. And I know it's just about to be published now as we're speaking, so maybe it will. But it's just fascinating to me how the ideas themselves, which really do seem to work and were once just considered bog standard, you know, good economic ideas for generating growth— Uh, now have this kind of flavor of contrarianism, not because the ideas themselves necessarily changed, although they do have, you know, different wrinkles, nuances, as we learn, but because economics has become, I guess, a more complicated, you know, intellectual area. Uh, What do you think about that? So I'd say a couple of things. I think one, first of all, there's a famous saying, I forget who it's attributable to, but, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. 
So in this paper, we said, you know what, let's take that seri- let's let's take that seriously, and let's just try to see what the facts are. Because my own view is, I think economics has become a little obsessed with cuteness and cleverness, at least macro to some extent. I think we've forgotten that ultimately, why do we care about macroeconomics? We care about macroeconomics because macroeconomics is the biggest scale business in the world. <laughs> whether countries grow or not determines whether people eat or don't eat. And for me, I never lost sight of that fact because I came from a, I come from a poor country. So in the United States, we can have clever arguments about whether the inflation rate should be 2% or 4%. <laughs> And that's, that's, that's an argument over splitting hairs, okay? Whether the inflation rate is 40% or 10% determines whether kids go to school or not. And so I guess, I mean, I don't want to sound self-righteous here, but, you know, it's just a function of where I come from. When I, when, I, when I took my first international economics class when I was in college, it was in the fall of 1989, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. I remember actually walking across campus to class and people like running and screaming about the Berlin Wall having fallen. I was like, what are you talking about? And I got to class and I learned that the Berlin Wall actually had fallen. Of course, the falling of the Berlin Wall was a sea change in terms of the view about state, the state versus markets and economic policy. And more generally, it really turned the tide on these ideas surrounding the Baker hypothesis. And I thought when I took that first international economics class in college, I thought, okay, now I'm going to finally learn how, how the IMF ruined my country. Right? Because I grew up believing the supporters of Michael Manley, who said that the IMF had ruined Jamaica. And Manley had this great set of policies that would have worked if it weren't only for the IMF. And I spent the rest of my life kind of investigating that because that class really made me scratch my head. I said, you, need, you know what? I'm not so sure that uh, Michael Manley was right and his supporters are right. The world is complicated. And it, the more I've looked into it, the more I've realized that when countries actually change their policies when they stay when countries reduce inflation to a stable low and predictable level and oh, by the way I should give credit to the, the bank of jamaica i think brilliantly coined that phrase low stable and predictable inflation is the key to economic growth when countries open to free trade those two things first and foremost are non-negotiables in growth when countries do that they grow faster than before they did that our paper found that the growth report found that on foreign direct investment, the distinction between debt and equity is really critical. And a privatization, shakier ground, but still beneficial in certain circumstances. And so I think by clinically just going through what had become an ideological minefield, we're able to bring some facts to bear. But they're really, we think the facts are really important because unlike in the U.S. where the economic debates we're having are not so much about life and death, um, in developing countries, they are. And we're really concerned that we've lost sight because we're so worried about causality and, and other issues, which are really important scientifically. But we're trying to so write more and more clever papers and come up with, you know, clever theories about, you know, why the kind of basic bread and butter economics isn't right, that we lose sight of the bread and butter. <laughs> and, if you've ever, you've, and, if you, and if you've lived in a country where people can't get access to bread and butter, you're like, no. Yeah. Stop. (laughs) Yeah. That point about the higher stakes, I think has really been driven home in the last couple of years because, for example, I was looking at some numbers from Pew Research and about an additional 130 million people in the year 2020 because of COVID 
went from living above $2 a day to below $2 a day. And most of these people were concentrated in sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia. And Mm -hmm. this was roughly a 20% increase on the prior year, and it had reversed what had been continual progress, you know, in in prior decades. And it just, to me, showed that, like, you know, when you're living that close to subsistence, a hit to your economy can put you right back below that level, that poverty level, that global poverty level. And it also just shows that, like, the stakes— when it comes to economic growth are different in countries outside the developed world of the US, Europe, Japan, and, and, and a few other places. That this is not a sort of cute semantic debate here. This actually is in some places the difference between life or death, or at least between, you know, whether you go hungry or whether you have enough to eat, whether you can afford to buy, you know, textbooks for your kids so they can go to school and those kinds of things. It's just a, it's a completely different debate. And it really does seem sometimes like economics exists on two completely different dimensions when we're talking about developed countries versus developing countries. And maybe that's appropriate. The circumstances really are different, but it's important to highlight that when we're talking about various policies and and their potential effects. Absolutely. Because otherwise you are basically exporting, you know, clever ideas from the rich world that um, that you're sort of, you know, playing with in your rich laboratory that are going to be absolutely detrimental to poor countries. And by the way, when I say, you know, it's not right, not me saying it's not right from an ideological perspective, it's me saying just we look at the data and the data are telling us, right? This is why, this is why we, want, we took this clinical approach and just looked at and say, what did the data have to say about you know, the effect of these policies on growth. And if these policies raise growth and the data is kind of screaming this at us, then it's just not right to obscure that fact. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I, I talk to my students. Students all want to know about climate change. And climate change is really important. And my students will say, well, gee, shouldn't we be moving to degrowth? And, you know, I just have to remind people that, you know, what does degrowth mean? You just said it really well, Cardiff. Degrowth in poor countries since the start of COVID has been 130 million people are in poverty that weren't in poverty before. Now, of course, the key here is we want growth and a livable planet. But the point is, you can't just say that the countries that haven't uh, had to be able to taste the fruits of prosperity don't grow. Yeah. And oh, by the way, we grew for a century or so and polluted the heck out of the planet, but we're not going to let you do the same thing. And we're not, but, and by the way, we're not, we're not willing to, to pay any price or make any trade-offs. So that's not a real conversation. And so the real conversation is how do we how do we recognize what it is that helps poor countries grow? Recognize what it is that we need to maintain the livability of the planet and have a real conversation about how we find a middle ground in order to get there with zero net emissions. Yeah, and I, I know you've spoken before about how one of the paths to getting there is through more infrastructure investment in the developing world. What exactly do you mean by that? There are, you know, roughly a billion people who have act, don't have access to electricity. Another billion people, roughly, who um, live more than uh, more than a few kilometers away from an all-season road. So the lack of electricity and roads in poor countries is a huge obstacle to growth, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And by the way, um, the the opportunity to invest in infrastructure in poor countries. 
uh, is also potentially a, a big part of the solution to getting us out of the low interest rate environment we've been in for the last couple of decades and this what's called the Global Savings Club. Now, the Biden administration recently announced its Build Back Better World initiative, this B3W initiative, and part of that initiative, which didn't get as much attention as I think it should have gotten, um, is an, an initiative to bring more financing of infrastructure, private financing of infrastructure in the developing world. So here we are again talking about capital flows, right? So in principle, there is a big opportunity to have more capital flow from rich countries like the United States and countries in Western Europe to finance the building of roads and electricity in places like Nigeria and other uh, poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa and Indonesia and elsewhere. Um, and why is this so important? Well, one, there's the growth part of it, okay? It could finance higher growth in the developing world. So by, basically by bringing people out of unemployment, and you do that by building roads and electricity, you allow for more productive economic, economic activity, okay? But the more sustainable environment part comes in because you think about the biggest growth opportunity in the developing world is actually going to be cities. So the, 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 the UN population survey tells us that between the year 2000 and the, world, and the year, I believe it's 2040, the world's urban population, in other words, the number of people that live in cities, is going to go from, I believe it was 2 billion to 4 billion. So we're in the middle of a doubling of the world's urban population. And virtually 100% of that increase in the world's urban population, which is basically a migration from rural areas into, into cities, is taking place in the developing world. And so either we're going to get, we're going to get clean, green, livable cities, or we're going to get cities that are going to generate a ton of carbon emissions. Peter, do you have a simple story for why all of the excess savings in the rich world uh, has not been rechanneled to the developing world to invest in things like roads and other infrastructure projects? Because I often see that cited as a failure of the financial system to channel money from where it is to where it could best be put to use. Uh, what's going on there? So... A couple of failures, frankly. So the first failure I would point to, and I'll I'll say there's I've just written another paper about this. I don't want to be self-serving here, but I've, I thought a lot about this. The first failure is of the World Bank, because the first the first thing you need in order to figure out how to finance infrastructure in the developing world is you got to figure out where it's profitable to do so and where it isn't, where it's potentially profitable. And so we have very little data, very little publicly available data that would tell us what is the economic rate of return to a road in Indonesia or Egypt or Nigeria or, or India. And the World Bank is the one place in the world that should be a central clearinghouse for those kinds of data. What we, what we would say is the social rate of return to, to building roads or, or electricity. Okay, So the World Bank in the year 2000 commissioned a major study uh, called the social rate of return to infrastructure in developing countries. Or it was called just the social rate of return to infrastructure. It was written in the year 2000. It was based on data from 1985. And the World Bank hasn't updated the data since then. So essentially, we've got 35-year-old data on the rate of return on infrastructure in the developing world. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. Wow. It's hard to convince somebody to invest in something if you have such a paucity of data on just how well their investments are going to pay off. 
Exactly. And it gets worse. The World Bank then in, in 2015 issued a major communique joint with the IMF and the multilateral, other multilateral investment banks, in, uh, institutions like the, like the African Development Bank, that called for billion, going from billions to trillions in infrastructure. So in other, in other words, it was a, there's a tagline, billions to trillions, um, trying to motivate the private sector to think about how to invest in the developing world. And again, no data, no new systematically provided data. Okay, so that's the first failure. So if we have those data, so what I did, so basically, so using the, using the data that we do exist, that's now old, you know, I went back and actually looked at the rate of, rate of return to investment in infrastructure and compared it to the rate of investment in private projects in, say, the United States. In other words, if the rate of return to infrastructure in Nigeria is higher than it is, or Indonesia is higher than it is to private finance in the United States, you've at least got a chance of convincing capitalists of moving their money, right? And so when we did this, we actually found that of the countries for which data actually exists, there are 53 of them that were in that original World Bank report. Um, so contrary to the claim that the World Bank made of us needing to go from billions to trillions, which basically implies that there's lots and lots of investment opportunities out there just waiting to happen, it turns out that in less than less than a third of the countries that for which there is data, uh, is it both publicly efficient, in other words, it's good for the countries if they do these greater infrastructure investments, and also privately profitable, meaning that rich countries could actually make money by moving money into infrastructure in poor countries. So you need both of those things to happen in order for infrastructure investment to make sense, you know, to do well and do good. And in less than a third of the countries in that um, initial World Bank report, would you have been able to make the case for their tagline? So the question now is, you know, given this framework that we lay out, what, what do the data tell us now? And, and if, I were, if I were, you know, running things for President Biden at the, <laughs> at the Treasury, uh, International Affairs at the Treasury, I would be, I'd march over to, to my colleagues at the World Bank and tell, say, hey, guys, how about producing some data that would actually allow the private sector to make some sensible decisions? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Peter, I have one final question as, as we run out of time. Um, you have an origin story that I actually buy. And what I mean by that is that I'm often sort of, I'm often <laughs> sort of suspicious of, you know, somebody saying, well, you know, these things happened to me in childhood and therefore that's why I became an actor or whatever, right? I think, I think motivation is a really difficult psychological thing to untangle. But in your case, mm -hmm. it, it, there's such a direct relationship between your quite, you know, quite dramatic experiences as a kid growing up in Jamaica uh, and what you've sort of dedicated your career to doing that it just seems clear that there's a relationship there. So you've talked about Michael Manley's sort of, you know, well-intentioned economic disaster, right? In other words, that he pursued these policies which were meant um, to boost the country's, you know, worst off and ended up having kind of the exact opposite effect. And it sort of torched Jamaica's, you know, growth prospects for multiple generations, you know. But you also talk about, you know, some of your own childhood experiences before all that came to pass, before you left the country. And I'd love for you to just tell us the story of your grandmother and a woman named Miss Mama. Yeah, so my, my grandmother known to her former students as uh, Miss Jem, my dad's mom, was a teacher. So when I used to spend time at my grandmother's house as a kid in Kingston, Jamaica, I was always reading and doing various 
things on her on her front porch, and we'd always have conversations about the things that I read during the course of the day, the atlas, encyclopedias, countries around the world, all, all manner manner of things that were going on beyond the shores of Jamaica, and. Our, our afternoon sessions were frequently punctuated by visits from a lady named Miss Mama who would come knocking at my grandmother's gate. And I always found it, you know, at the time, it was just kind of odd as a kid. I was probably six, seven years old. This woman, Miss Mama, would come to the gate. She had, you know, her hair was matted. Uh, her teeth were scraggly. She was barefoot most of the time. And she had a big protruding belly. And... And invariably, my grandmother would ask, you know, say to Miss Mama, are you hungry? And she would say yes. And she would sit down on the porch. And my grandmother would go in the kitchen and get uh, some milk, like a big tumbler of milk and a big hunk of bread and bring it out. And Miss Mama would eat it. And they'd chat for a little bit. And, and, and then Miss Mama would leave. And I remember one day I asked my grandmother, I said, I said, I said Grandma, you know, Miss Mama has a big belly. Why is she always hungry? You know, very naively. And my grandmother said to me, some people have big bellies because they eat too much. Other people have big bellies because they can't get enough to eat. And that was my first encounter, obviously, with, you know, someone having a distended belly from hunger. And so the point is, you know, being growing up in Jamaica, I was not, I did not grow up in poverty, never been close to poverty. I was born on third base. Both my parents had PhDs. <laughs> Story for another day. Uh, how they got to the States, you know, is kind of elements in globalization. But growing up in Jamaica, I was never far from poverty. And it really stuck with me. Miss Mama stuck with me. It really stuck with me, you know, when we lived out in the country in Jamaica, uh, in the middle of nowhere, just all the kids that I used to play with on a daily basis who worked uh, for the folks who, um, who helped out at our house, you know, didn't have much. Then I moved to the United States and we moved to a suburban Chicago, a suburb of Wilmette, you know, in 1978. Not a lot of people came, you know, knocking on our door asking for bread. <laughs> Growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, it's a totally different place, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't, you don't do well in school in Jamaica, you know, life's really hard. You grow up in, the, in, in Wilmette, Illinois, you don't do well in school, your dad gets you a job at a hedge fund. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a little, but you know what I mean? And that's, that, those differences are real. When you're, when you're coming from Jamaica as a kid in the 70s, like you, yeah. and you, then you're having you know, the next couple of decades of your life, you're just seeing this stuff. And it affects you. You know, when I got to college, I really wanted to understand why, you know, I took my first economics class and I said, wow, some countries are rich and some countries are poor. And here's the discipline that actually has something to say about that. And so I spent the rest of my life, you know, kind of chasing down this answer. Why is, why is, why is Jamaica rich and the, U, and the U.S., sorry, Jamaica poor and the U.S. rich? And, you know, for a while I thought it was the IMF that made Jamaica poor. If you believe Michael Manley, that was the answer. Turns out that's not the answer. And so one of the things I think I've learned most since I wrote Turnaround, uh, actually, is that, you know, Jamaica's actually, before COVID hit, had actually made some real real economic changes to kind of start moving in the right direction. And I hope those will continue. And so I get really, I get really fired up about, um, about economic policy because it's, it's how you help Miss Mama. You know, um, it's how you help people help themselves. Peter Blair Henry, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Cardiff. And that's a wrap on the first episode of The New Bazaar, hopefully the first of many. You can find links to The Baker Hypothesis and to Peter's book, Turnaround, in the show notes for this episode. 
The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio, the new company founded by executive producer Amy Keene and me. And let me say a word on Amy on this first ever episode of The New Bazaar. My career as a podcast host would never have been possible if Amy and I had not first partnered at the Financial Times seven years ago. She is just an unmitigated joy to collaborate with and also a monster, monster talent. And I promised her, by the way, that I would not embarrass her with enthusiastic praise in the credits, but I lied. And I don't care. I think she deserves it. And I absolutely will keep finding new ways to embarrass her in the credits in all future episodes. So keep tuning into the show, if only just to hear me refer to Amy as a soft serve ice cream cone with sprinkles on a summer afternoon, whatever else I can come up with. By the way, what goes into making a podcast is not universally well understood, so you should know that it involves a group of crucial people who never get enough credit. So special thanks to Adrian Lilly, a sound engineer who wields magic and has found ways to make me sound like a smoother conversationalist than I actually am. Special thanks also to Rob Byers, Johnny Vince Evans, and Michael Raphael of Final Final V2 for helping guide us on how to record episodes remotely under the challenging circumstances of podcasting in a pandemic. And finally, our awesome theme music is an original composition by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Check those dudes out, seriously. They're based in Richmond, Virginia, and they are fantastic AF. I mean, listen to the sound that they constructed from scratch after all we did was tell them what kind of vibes we like. Just great to work with. We have a ton in store for the inaugural season of the new bazaar. In just the first couple of months, Future topics are going to include immigration, the psychological effects of living through a crisis, a vicious financial battle over a casino, the economic policies that extend our lives, and even how poker can teach us to make better economic decisions. It's going to be a lot of fun. So please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, or even if not, actually, but you're just feeling generous, leave us a review or tell a friend. That is so important for a podcast that's just starting out. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter at at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email Amy and me at hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. Thanks so much for checking us out, and hopefully we'll see you next week.